I am very excited to share this teaching, and I know that this particular teaching is a deep foundational truth that we need in here. We need it in our very innermost being. There's a scripture, it's twice in the Bible, it's repeated. Once is in the first book of Psalms, and the other one is in Jeremiah 17. And in both of those scriptures, it talks about the tree of life. And it talks about the importance of having roots planted deep by the river of life. And that with those roots planted deep, you won't die of of, um, famine or of drought or be scorched by the heat. In other words, times when you maybe haven't seen the answer manifest yet or times when you're feeling attacked by the enemy or fear or whatever it is, it says you will not um, um, be taken over by that, but you will prosper. You will produce fruit because you're a tree of life. I believe this teaching is one of those foundational teachings that will help us to have those deep, deep roots. Um, Kent's recording this, and I'm glad because... We need this message out there, and I'm going to be posting it with a message, please, please, please listen, because this is so foundational to receiving our healing. Pastor Tim said, and I quoted this last time you were here, Pastor Tim once made this statement, and I took note. He said that knowing your identity is critical in receiving your healing, Knowing your identity, who you really are in Christ, your true identity in Christ is critical in receiving your healing. And the opposite's also true. If you're believing a lie, if you're believing stuff about yourself that's not your true identity, if you're taking the lies of the enemy in and believing them, you're under the deception of the enemy. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. And it's destructive. He wants to steal. He wants to do identity theft. He wants to steal your true identity. Or he wants to give you an identity crisis and twist stuff so that you believe lies instead of truth. And it's very, very damaging. But if we know who we are, if we know whose we are, then we can fulfill what Jesus came to do. And that's to give us a life and a life of abundance and a life of overflow. So the last time we were here, we talked about the first piece of identity that I really wanted to zero in on, which this is a healing class. The first part of identity we talked about is the truth that we were healed. We were healed. And I'm using the past tense term because it's past tense. Jesus already paid for it. And we looked at a shift in a paradigm that says... I'm not a sick person trying to get healed. I'm a healed person defending the healing that's already mine. So it's just a shift in in our thinking. It's a big shift in our thinking. And focusing on that truth that by the stripes of Jesus you were healed. Now I did that teaching two weeks ago, but it's a really important one. I also shared that um, this new identity this new identity that we have, we received when we became born again. It's all ours. It's who we are. But we might not know who we are. 
And we come to know who we are through meditation on the word and through renewing our mind. Pastor Richard's been teaching about this over the last several weeks. Another word for renewing our mind or changing our thinking is repentance. And that's a critical, critical piece, is taking the truths that we're learning about, meditating on them, renewing our mind to the truth so that we become that tree of life with deep, deep roots, not shallow roots, not the, not the ones that the devil can steal because it's sown on ground that's you know, shallow, shallow roots and the enemy just steals it. We don't want that. We want the deep roots in the tree of life. So two weeks ago, I taught on that. You can go back, you can get the, the handout, and you can listen online if you weren't here. But today we're going to move into this teaching. And what we're going to look at are three truths that are all connected. You are forgiven completely and forever. You are forgiven, number one. Number two, because you're forgiven, you're righteous. And number three, because you're forgiven and righteous, you're worthy of healing. You're worthy of receiving this precious gift of God. Many people don't know this truth, and because they don't know this truth, they're not receiving their full benefits. It's really hard to have faith to believe if you don't know that you're forgiven and righteous and worthy. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what the Bible says about it. Now, this is something I've shared many times in different contexts, maybe different snippets. But in this teaching, I really want to go deep so that you have manna from the word to feed your soul. And this might not even be for you sitting here. This might be for the people that are going to be listening. But it's going to renew all of us. It's going to renew me too. So, number one, you are forgiven completely and forever. In the New Testament, when the word forgiveness is used, it's the Greek word aphesis, A-P-H-E-S-I-S. It's on your handout, aphesis. And that word is sometimes translated forgiven, and sometimes it's translated remission. And I want to define that, and then I'm going to give you some scriptures. Remission of sin. This is what Jesus did with the sacrifice of his life. All sin was remitted. Remission means sin is pardoned. It means that God lets go of our sin as if it's never been committed. Another word that we often hear, in fact, we're going to touch on this in a little bit. Another word is justification. And we have often heard that in, in the context of church, that justification means just as if I've never sinned. That's remission. Just as if you've never sinned. It also means remission of the penalty. The penalty of sin and cancellation of the debt owed. That's how God forgives us completely. Sin isn't just suppressed by the cross. It is eliminated. It is eliminated. If you can put one word with remission, that's the word I'd put. That's the word I'd put in my brain and say, sin is my sin, my sin, all sin has been forgiven. It's been remitted. It's been eliminated. Now I'm going to read you two scriptures from the Bible. Here's the first one. Matthew 26, verse 27 through 28. 
This is Jesus at the Last Supper. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. There's Jesus telling us what he's going to do. He hasn't done it yet, but he's giving us this, this ordinance to, for us to keep doing. That's what an ordinance is. Jesus instituted it, instituted it for us to follow, to remember what he did. He instituted the new covenant when he shed his blood for the purpose of remission of sin. And that word remission is the one we just talked about. Sin is eliminated. It's completely pardoned. Here's the next scripture, Ephesians 1, 7. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. I love the word redemption. I love the word redeemed. We have been, we have been rescued. We have been, um, 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 the ransom has been paid. We have been redeemed through Jesus' blood. And the reason we've been redeemed, how we've been redeemed, is because our sin has been remitted. And that word forgiveness is the same word, aphesis. Our sin has been completely and forever remitted. I want to share with you, God help me to do this, a revelation that he's put in my heart that is so deep. Sometimes it's hard for me to communicate it, but I'm going to do my best. So the reason Jesus had to do this This part most of us completely believe and understand. The reason Jesus had to do this is because there was a sin barrier between us and God. Because of the nature of sin that we lived in because of the fall of man, we couldn't be in communion with God. We couldn't be in fellowship with God. Barb, could you get me some water, please? Because of the sin that was in the, in the way. And it, it broke God's heart. He wanted fellowship with his kids. So he had a plan, and this was his plan, that the perfect lamb, the unblemished lamb, the only one who would never sinned, the, is the only one that could make this happen. And he paid for our sin. So the barrier was no longer there. So he got rid of the barrier. He destroyed the sin barrier. Now here's my revelation. I know, I know deep in my heart that that is true forever and completely. So once I've received Jesus as my savior, and I have, once I've received Jesus as my savior, sin is never again an issue. Because if it were, if I was forgiven, and when I, when I asked Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior, but then when I sinned again, my, my soul, my, my spirit was again under sin, I'd be right back where I was in the old covenant. I would be clean, then I would be dirty again, and I couldn't have 
um, fellowship with God again. And then I would be, I would confess, I'd be clean again. And then I would be not clean again. And I wouldn't be able to have fellowship with my father. And I wouldn't be able to go directly and boldly and confidently before his throne of grace. Does the Bible say I can though? It does. Romans 4, 16 says, come, come to my throne confidently and boldly. If sin kept re-staining my spirit and my soul after I was saved, then it would be just as if I was back in the old covenant again. I'm not. Jesus has said right there in Matthew 27 that he said, drink from it, for this is my blood of the new covenant. Hebrews, it says it's a better covenant. We do not have sin that keeps staining us. This is the way I see myself. How many of you are Catholic or are Catholic? Okay, me too. So in my Catholic days, um, um, I celebrated all of the sacraments of Catholicism, one of which was confession. And this is how I saw myself. I saw myself with a blackboard in here. And every time I sinned, that sin was written on the blackboard. And then when I would go to confession, I did my best to read that list to the priest so I could be forgiven. Of course, you never remember or or know all of the sins that are committed or that you omitted, sins of commission, sins of omission, venial and mortal, etc., etc. I didn't probably confess all of them, but I did my best. So I pictured that blackboard getting erased when I would go to confession and I could start all over, but then as soon as I sinned, there was, it started all over again, right? And the blackboard started getting full again. This is what I see now because I know truth, because I know what this word says. What I see now in here is a whiteboard. And on my whiteboard, when I received Jesus for my Savior, God cleaned that whiteboard. He didn't just erase it. He took that squirty stuff and he sprayed it and he polished it all up and it shines. And there's never one more sin written on that whiteboard. Because my sin has been remitted. It's been eliminated. It's gone. In the spiritual part of me, there's no more sin. Now, that doesn't mean I can't miss it, and I do. And it doesn't mean it doesn't affect my soul and my flesh, because sin does. It affects my heart. It affects my mind. It affects my emotions. It affects my thinking. It affects my flesh. Yeah, it does, but not my spirit. My spirit is whiteboard, sparkling, clean. Sin has been completely and forever eliminated. I'm going to read you some more scriptures. I'm going to give you more evidence. This is Romans 6.6. 6. Could it be any clearer that our former identity, we're talking about the old identity and the new one. Could it be any clearer that our former identity is now and forever deprived of its power? For we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us so that we would not continue to live one minute longer submitted to sin's power. That old identity's gone. 
the sin nature, the old person before I was co-crucified with Christ. Jesus, it says in 1 Peter 2.24 that he took my sins into his body on the tree. And then he died with them. He paid the price for them. All of them. He never has to be crucified again. He was crucified once and for all, for all sin of all humanity, for all time. Colossians 2, verse 14 and 15. And through the divine authority of his cross, he canceled out every legal violation we had on our record. And the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us, he erased it all, our sins, our stained soul, our shameful failure to keep his laws. He deleted it all and they cannot be retrieved. How do you like that? So picture a hard drive right now. I can't believe I'm going to say this. And Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Destroying the hard drive. Deleting, never can be restored. Way better than that hard drive. (laughs) Because you never know how they can restore those things. Nope, it's gone. Never to be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam, guys, that was our old identity, has been placed onto his cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Amen. Go to the next slide. The next verse says, And then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness. That's the enemy. Because he was in control. He was in dominion. And he stripped away from them, from the enemy, every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. So that's what people live in, that accusation. Accused of not, of, you know, missing it, of sinning, of, of not being good enough, of all of the past stuff that you've lived in and how terrible it was. We've all been there. We've all got stuff. We've all got stuff today that we're probably in the midst of. But the enemy has no more power to accuse us. It's been stripped from him. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them, the powers and principalities of darkness, around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He wasn't their prisoner. They were his. The enemy has no more power to accuse us. The only power he has is the power we give him. And as Pastor Tim said in that quote, if if we allow the enemy's deception of who we are, get in the way. It can keep us from receiving all that he has for us. If we don't feel we're worthy because of sin, then it can keep us from the ability to believe and receive. So I'm going to give you two huge lies of the enemy that are very, very common in this area of sin. These lies could lead you or I into an identity crisis believing something wrong about our identity instead of the true identity that we have in Christ. So here's the first lie. And here, I'm just going to read it from your paper. This is a lie. Eternal salvation is still secure if you sin, but you lose fellowship with God, you can't get your prayers answered, and you can't be used by God. That is a lie. I don't want to point there. That's truth. That 
is a lie. You don't use, lose fellowship with God. You don't lose fellowship with God when you sin. Remember how I said um, that the finished work of Jesus removed the sin barrier so we could have fellowship with God. And that doesn't ever change. Sin does not hurt your fellowship with God. The only thing that can hurt your fellowship with God is you not running to God because of your sin, because of your actions. And that's what a lot of people do. They're in fear. They, they feel guilty. They feel condemnation. That's the lie of the enemy. We're going to go there in a minute. That's the enemy. It's not God. God is a good father, just like the prodigal story, the prodigal son story, with a father that literally ran to his son. That's what our father is waiting for us with open arms to come in that beautiful place of repentance, which is running to our daddy, not in, in guilt and condemnation, but because we missed it and we need to go to our daddy and get right with him again. So we don't lose fellowship. We, it doesn't interfere with our prayers getting answered. It doesn't interfere with being used of God. The only thing that interferes is our identity. Not seeing ourselves the way God sees us. And the, here's the second lie. Please write lie next to that on your paper. Because I don't think I clearly identified those as lies. And I don't want anybody to think that that's, those are truth where it says the deception of the enemy, the enemy's the father of lies, all that stuff. And then it says number one and two, write lies next to these. Lie number two. This is a lie. It is a lie that the forgiveness of sins is something God can do and continues to do, but not something he's completed. From that lie comes the false concept that we must con constantly confess our sins, which makes us and keeps us in a position of sin consciousness. Because we think that if we don't confess, 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 we are in a place of, of, um, of not being forgiven. That's not true. It is important. The truth of the word, the truth is, I'm going to read a scripture and I'm going to go a little bit deeper. The truth is in him, in Jesus, we have redemption. That is our deliverance and salvation through his blood, which paid the penalty for our sins and resulted in the forgiveness and the complete pardon of our sin. The forgiveness, that word is aphasis, remittance. The remittance, the elimination, the complete pardon of our sin in accordance with the riches of his grace. There's only one sin that doesn't have an S on it. The word sin doesn't have an S on it. There's only one sin. Jesus took care of all sin. There's only one sin that can keep us away from the fullness of God, and that is not believing in Jesus. I'm going to show two scriptures. The first one is the book of Acts. This is when Peter and Silas 
were in the prison. Can't go to the second slide because I'm not going to read this whole scripture. I'm just going to kind of talk through it. This is when Paul and Silas were imprisoned and um, they were worshiping. And in the middle of their worship, there was an earthquake and they were released. All the chains were taken off and they were, they were I mean, it was totally supernatural. And the jailer was going to kill himself because he would have been executed from letting the prisoners go. And that's where I'm going to pick up. Startled, the jailer awoke and saw every cell door standing open. Assuming that all the prisoners had escaped, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself when Paul shouted in the darkness, Stop, don't hurt yourself, we're all still here. I can't believe Paul did that. I would have been out of there. But he was so concerned about this jailer's salvation. So the jailer called for a light, and when he saw that they were still in their cells, he rushed in and fell trembling at their feet. Then he led Paul and Silas outside and asked them, what must I do to be saved? Did Paul and Silas say, repent, confess all your sins, fall down at the altar, cry in guilt and condemnation? Is that what he said? No. What did he say? Believe. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved, you and your family. And then the next scripture is Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. This is the one that my beautiful friend Jenny shared with me the day that she asked me if I was saved. And I said, I think so. I'm a good person. You know, I go to church every Sunday, etc., etc. And she said, do you want to be sure? And I said, yes, I want to be sure. And she went and got her Bible and opened to the scripture. Can't we, we change the slide, please? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Does it say that I need to get on my face and confess all my sins? Uh Uh-uh. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. So, I, you know, I lead people to salvation all the time. And it's, oh, I love to pray with people for salvation. And I've never asked them to confess sin. I've always asked them, do you believe in Jesus? Do you want to surrender your life to him and let him be the Lord of your life and give up control? That's how I lead them to salvation. That's how I was led to salvation and everything changed from that moment on. So we don't have to confess our sins to be saved. We don't have to confess our sins to retain or to maintain our salvation. The reason that we run to God in a position of repentance, and I, use the, I like that word repentance better than confession because of my connotation as a little kid of confession. But the, another meaning of confession is to agree with God. So when I go before my God in a position of repentance or confession, I'm just agreeing with him, coming into agreement with what his word says, and falling out of agreement with the enemy, with the accusations, with any yuck 
that has connected, you know, residue stuff that connects, your, connects with you when you're, when you're in a place of whatever it is, whether you're, you know, bitter or angry, that's usually the, the biggest thing that I have to deal with personally. So if those things are, if I'm, you know, hurt or wounded or whatever, I run to my daddy and I give it to him and I let it go. So that's the purpose of confessing. It stops the enemy from domin dominating us through that sin and draws us, draws that forgiveness and purity that's already in our born-again spirit into the rest of us, into our soul, into our flesh. So you are completely and forever forgiven. That's really good news. Because we're completely and forever forgiven, we are also made righteous. We need to move out of that place of sin consciousness and being so concerned about everything we miss. We need to move out of sin consciousness and into righteousness consciousness. That's a mouthful. Say that a few times. We need to be conscious of how righteous we are, not because of how good we are, but because of what Jesus did. So let me show you two, two beautiful scriptures. The first one is Romans 3.24. Yet through his powerful declaration of acquittal, God freely gives away his righteousness. His gift of love and favor now cascades over us, all because Jesus, the anointed one, has liberated us from the guilt, punishment, and power of sin. Is that good news or what? We have been acquitted. We have been freely given his righteousness. We've been liberated. We are set free from the bondage of sin, from the dominion of sin, from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. Hallelujah. All of that happened. We were made, oh, I got to read the next righteousness scripture. Second Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, Jesus. We have this gift of divine exchange, and this is a great one. There's a lot of pieces of the divine exchange. Today we're talking about this one in particular, where Jesus became sin. He had no sin. He was the only man that ever lived without sin. He became sin so that we could have that divine exchange and we became his righteousness because he paid for all our sin. He took all our sin, all sin, into his body on the cross and paid the price for it so that we, when we accepted the sacrifice, could be made righteous. Now this position, this righteousness became ours when we received Jesus as our Savior. It's already there for everybody in the whole wide world, but it's not theirs. It's not ours until we accept the sacrifice. When we do accept the sacrifice, we become righteous. On February the 19th, I got to think again because my daughter's birthday is in there and I get the two mixed up. February 19th, 2002, Cindy became righteous. 
I don't know what your day is, but whenever you receive Jesus as your Savior, that's the day that that slate got erased and polished and you became righteous. The spirit part of you, your soul, not so much. <laughs> that's your mind, your will, your emotions. Your body, maybe not so much. You might not look or sound or act too righteous, but your spirit person was completely perfected. Righteousness is a gift. It's part of the gift of grace, whereby all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are brought into unbroken fellowship with God. Sin is never going to break that fellowship. You were reconciled unto God once and forever. That's good news. This beautiful righteousness is not obtainable through your works. Works, um, earning righteousness, um, giving to the poor, um, going on mission trips, um, doing your best to do works. Nope, it's not obtainable through works. It's not obtainable through obeying the rules. Many of us try, 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 and you don't, you don't live up to it, and you probably never will, following every letter of the law. You can't get righteousness that way. And you can't get it through merit. Merit means being a good person. There's a lot of really good people in the world who have never received Jesus. I was one of them. You know, that was my... Thing when Jenny said, are you saved? I said, well, I'm a good person. Well, that didn't make me righteous. Righteousness only comes through Jesus, through believing and receiving Jesus and his sacrifice that he paid for. Righteousness isn't a state of doing. It's a state of being. It's a noun. It's not a verb. We are righteous. It's who we are. It's part of our identity. So because we're for completely and forever forgiven, we have been made righteous. And because we have made, been made righteous, we are worthy. And this is the crux of what I want to talk about tonight. We're worthy to be healed. We're worthy to receive this precious wholeness in our body and in our lives. We're worthy to live in the abundance of life that Jesus came to pay for. It doesn't matter what your history was. It doesn't matter what your family life looked like or looks like now. You're worthy. You're completely worthy because of Jesus. So I want to read one scripture, one account of Jesus and how he treated the unworthy. Now, if you just brainstorm with me for a minute about Jesus when he walked on this earth, he ministered to all sorts of lost, broken, messed up people, right? Tax collectors, sinners, um, people that didn't even know him, people that weren't in the covenant um, with him because they weren't Jewish or they weren't Israelites. He, he ministered to all sorts of people. He went to them. It says in different scriptures that he didn't come to, for the sick he, or for the, for the healed. He came for the sick. He didn't come for the 
uh, the people that were all good, all good. He came for the sinners. Well, this is one of those accounts because I want to show you just a picture of our Lord Jesus because he points us to the heart of the Father. I'm only going to read one. This is the one about the woman with adulter the adulterous woman. Now, early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman is caught in, the, in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. So we have the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees those who knew the law, who knew the old covenant, who knew the Torah, who enforced it. And they said, Jesus, this woman deserves stoning. And according to the Old Testament, to the old covenant, that's exactly what she did deserve. So they continued asking him and he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest and even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And then Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Jesus hadn't yet paid the price. But even before he offered himself as a sacrificial lamb, he was pointing us to the heart of the Father. In, this, in the verse there where Jesus is asking the woman where her accusers are, that word accusers is the word categoros, and it literally means devil. This is a name used for Satan. Remember, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. But Jesus took care of that. In that Colossian scripture I read you earlier, this is what it said. Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. That word, accuser, the enemy, can be likened to a prosecuting attorney. The job of a prosecuting attorney is to work for the government to prove guilt. And the way that they do that is by pointing out every, all the bad stuff. So what they do is they look at things like um, evidence of his failures. Um, um, they um, attempt to prosecute them for their failures. They do not point out any of the person's good points. That's what a prosecuting attorney does. Does that sound familiar? Is that what the enemy does? Yup. So if you're sitting listening to this, and you've been contending for the healing that Jesus paid for and haven't yet seen it. So many of us say, they listen to that stupid devil accusing you 
of not doing this or not doing that or doing this or doing that. But the point that I'm making today is that according to the word, according to the finished work, and it was a big work that Jesus did, that is a lie. He defeated the accuser. The accuser has no more power to accuse us. And if we let him accuse us, it's as if Jesus didn't do enough and we have to add to the work that he did. And that's certainly not true. Jesus in this scripture didn't condemn her. He said, I don't condemn you. None of those people condemned you and neither do I. He's the only one that could because he's the only one that hadn't sinned. But he said, I'm not going to condemn you either. And he acquitted her. Acquitted means she wasn't charged with the offense. She was guilty, but she was not charged with the offense. She was acquitted. No condemnation. Jesus is the defense attorney. And the defense attorney is looking at all the good points of the person and showing their innocence, in this case, that the price had already been paid. That's what Jesus does for us. We're not guilty because the price that we owed has been paid through his blood. So Romans 5.16 says, Nor is this gift of grace like that which came through the one who sinned. So in this scripture, Romans 5, there is this beautiful comparison between the fall of man and Adam and the redemption of Jesus. And they're comparing in this scripture the sin with the gift of grace. So nor is the gift of grace like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment following the sin resulted from one trespass and brought condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift resulted from many trespasses and brought justification. The release from sin's penalty for those who believe. So the first part of the scripture talks about the fall of man, the sin, and condemnation. Condemnation is a judicial sentence. Guilty. Damnatory sentence. Unworthy. That's who we were before we received Jesus' gift. But after we received his gift, we were justified. We were released from sin's penalty. We, it's just as if we never sinned. And that word justification is also a judicial decision. But it's a favorable judgment where we have been acquitted and declared acceptable to God. Just like the woman caught in adultery. And acquittal means legally set free, legally set free from the charge of the offense and made worthy. That's me. That's you. That's wonderful news. God's grace provided through Jesus' sacrifice. That's the source of our worthiness. Therefore, God says, Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no guilty verdict, 
No punishment, including sickness. No punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in him as personal Lord and Savior. Do you believe in him as your personal Lord and Savior? Then you're not guilty. For the law of the spirit of life, which is in Christ Jesus, the law of our new being, has set you free from the law of sin and death, including the penalty, including the the effects, including all of the residue of the law of sin and death or the law. We've been set free. Our new identity, that's who we are. That's who we are. No, No condemnation. Our new identity is free, acquitted, free, liberated. That's who we are. That's our new identity. So here's the, the question, the big question. This is a big one. Did Jesus die in vain for you? He paid a great big price. But for many people, it's as if he died in vain. It didn't even matter because they didn't receive it. If you think that you have to follow every letter of the law to receive the benefits, then it's as if Jesus died in vain. Because the law was already there. We don't live under the law anymore. We live under grace. Listen to this word. This is Galatians 2, verse 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not, I'm just going to say it like this, I refuse to set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Grace of God is what Jesus paid for. He paid a great big price for it. Everything we've been talking about tonight, forgiveness, righteousness, worthiness, it's been completely paid. It's a free gift. Through the law is the old covenant. It's the old system. In the old system, in the law, in the sacrificial system, there's this whole thing with with, um, sin and curses. And when you were obedient, there were blessings. That's not the system anymore. Jesus became the curse because he paid for the sin. He paid for the sin to defeat the curse. If we still put ourselves in that place of guilt and condemnation, because we miss it. I miss it all the time. But I am not under the law. I'm under grace. And I refuse to put myself in a place where Jesus died in vain. He paid too big of a price. If we claim that lie, if we claim the lie of unworthiness, it's pride. You're looking at yourself instead of looking at him. If we claim that lie, can you imagine our, our amazing father was this amazing gift and we're not receiving it? How I must hurt him? Unworthiness, this unworthiness and condemnation are our residue from our past, usually from our past, sometimes from present day stuff that's going on in our lives, and we blame ourselves. 
We blame ourselves for, for what's happening. We blame ourselves for not getting healed. We blame ourselves for whatever. And look who we're looking at. We're looking at us instead of the work of Jesus. And that is pride. I tell people that all the time. It's almost as if they feel like if they're taking it all upon themselves, it's this hum humble thing. No, 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 no. It's pride. And sometimes when I say that boldly, it wakes them up to look at Jesus and what he did instead of themselves. If, as a born-again believer... If you're experiencing condemnation, you're focusing on who you were before you were born again. You're focusing on the old identity. If you've bought that lie of condemnation and unworthiness, you have a case of mistaken identity. Instead, you need to renew your mind to truth and see yourself as he sees you and choose to agree with him. That's what repentance and confession is all about. When we buy that lie, it can inhibit our faith. It can hinder our faith from believing. And that's what the enemy wants. That's what the enemy wants. That's why he deceives us into that. When we receive forgiveness, when we receive our righteousness, when we receive ourselves as being worthy, God is honored. He's honored when we receive that precious gift that he paid for. So I'm going to read this Galatian scripture one more time from another translation. This is um, the Passion. My old identity has been crucified with Messiah and no longer lives. The sin, the sin, the, the um, pride, the control. I'm just thinking of the old Cindy. The, the type A, the perfectionist, the one who, who did it all, who, who you know, chalked everything up to her own, her own works. That me no longer lives. For the nails of Jesus' cross crucified me with him. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine. For the anointed one lives his life through me. We live as union as one. So I don't live by myself anymore. Christ lives in me. My new life is empowered by the faith of the Son of God who loves me so much that he gave himself for me and dispenses his life into mine. We go to the next slide. So that's why I don't view God's grace as something minor or peripheral. For if keeping the law, doing everything right, trying not to sin, could release God's righteousness to me, then the anointed one would have died for nothing. And Romans 8.15 says, And you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance, enfolding you into the family of God. 
So we need to let go of lies and that old identity because that's not who we are anymore. You are worthy. You're worthy to receive everything in the inheritance of God. Next week, we're going to look at the, the, the scripture that I just left off with. That's where we're going to start next week because we have a new identity. We are children of God and there's a whole lot that goes with being a child of God. I want to share, um, I have, Barb, did you make some of those little booklets yet? Or you're going to do it this week? Okay. Um, one of the ministries that God has put on my heart, I have, I have entitled Redeemed. And what I do in this Redeemed ministry, it's a one-on-one -on -one prayer ministry where I just sit down with people and we go to God and, and let him show us specifically lies that maybe people are believing because those lies in our identity can really impact us and keep us from receiving all that he has for us. So one of the things that I do when, when God reveals a lie is I replace that lie with truth. So I have lots of these declarations that I have, they're all based on the word of God, that I have put together. And I felt like, I think I need to share them with us, with this group here, because that's what we're talking about right now is our true identity. So Barb is going to be making little booklets. <laughs> Barb is going to be making little booklets of these declarations, but I'm just going to read one of them to you right now. It's called, I am worthy. So if you've been believing you're not worthy or if you've been believing a bunch of lies in context with what we're talking about tonight, here's truth. Just close your eyes and feed on this truth. I am not under condemnation. I do not have a guilty verdict. I don't deserve to be punished because Jesus took my punishment. I've been acquitted from all guilt. Jesus paid the price for my redemption, my freedom, my deliverance when he shed his blood to completely free me from all sin and from all the effects of sin. He took my sin upon his body on the cross and he gave me his righteousness. I am righteous. It's my state of being for all eternity. I have been set free from the law of sin and death. Jesus set me free, and I am truly free. The power of the love of God has freed me from the power of sin. If I claim the lie of unworthiness, then Jesus died when, when Jesus died to destroy the sin barrier and reconcile me to the Father, then it's as if he died in vain. When I receive the gift of forgiveness... The one who gave it to me is honored. I am worthy, no matter what I've done or not done. I'm worthy because what Jesus has done for me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I am worthy. Thank you, Jesus. So your homework. I don't usually give homework, but in this series, I'm giving homework. If there's anything that is connecting with you through this whole series where you realize you've been believing a lie about your identity, go home and start meditating on truth. You got lots of scriptures. 
take the scriptures that are just stirring in your heart, especially the ones that are the hardest to believe, because those are probably the ones that you need to get in there the deepest. And read them out loud, meditate on them, take them to God. Build those deep roots so that your tree of life won't wither. It won't die. It won't be um, stolen from you. 